The Christian's call to follow Jesus does not constitute an additional obligation in life. As in, there's our work obligation, there's our family obligation, and then there's our Christian discipleship obligation too, and that gets shoehorned in there somewhere between our gym membership, our investment portfolio, and our travel plans. It doesn't work that way. Our call to follow Jesus isn't an additional obligation in life. It is our life. It defines our life. And that divine call judges, replaces, and subordinates all other obligations, allegiances, and priorities in this life to God's will. That means we're no longer living for ourselves. We belong to another. Our life priorities are now God's priorities for us. That's what it means to be a Christian disciple. And we're certainly not getting the short end of the stick in this covenantal relationship. Jesus promises, brothers and sisters, if we give up everything, everything to follow him, if we hold nothing back in autonomous reserve, if we cling to nothing in life as more important than Christ and living for him and loving and serving his people, all those one another texts that we read in the New Testament, then we won't simply be compensated for our sacrifices will be rewarded 100 times over in his consummated kingdom. It's a promise. Matthew 19, 28, the Lord says, Truly I tell you, at the renewal of all things, just feast on that phrase for a second, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. New City, that's truth. We need to preach to our heart each day. Because that future outlook has a massive impact on our present Christian conduct. That's, that's God's intent. Now, obviously, that sort of perspective on life flies in the face of everything we see around us. I mean, can you imagine if, if a team of cultural anthropologists from another planet landed their spaceship at the Eaton Center and then proceeded to study human culture as they strolled through the mall? Uh. (laughs) Or what would they think of us as a species if they watched our television programs for one day? What sort of things would they naturally think Canadians believe to be of the highest value in life? A lot of it would be selfish material things, things that are passing, things that are transitory, things of no eternal significance. Look around, people. The most important event in all of human history, what God has accomplished in the death and resurrection of his son for sin, is buried under mountains of glittering garbage, soul-destroying hedonism, trivia, and ephemera. Things that are passing and transitory and of no eternal significance have always been more attractive than the gospel in this fallen world. What's our culture's credo? 
Whatever promotes your happiness, pursue that thing with abandon. Serve yourself. You only go around once. Go for the gusto. And there's a sinful part of us as Christians that's attracted to that message. It's attractive because it puts us and our perceived needs and desires at center stage. You see, I confess, I too easily compromise my Christian discipleship. The, the call to follow Jesus often does constitute an additional obligation in my life. I'm so inconsistently double-souled. I'm so often influenced by the world. I'm so often, I want to be a friend of the world. I am a friend of the world. God forgive me, I enjoy flirting with the world. It's fun to flirt, even though I'm married to a jealous husband. And I'm particularly prone to worldly inconsistency when it comes to money and facing hardship and suffering in this world. We all are. Because we too easily forget or we deliberately ignore the fact that we're living in the latter days. And that's the main thrust of our sermon passage today. That's James' challenge to us, New City. We're living in the last days. And that reality must have its sanctifying impact on our Christian conduct. That the logic is we compromise and are inconsistent and are unduly influenced by the world if the fact that we're citizens of Jesus already here, not yet come, new creational kingdom, isn't at the very forefront of our minds. And so our sermon is titled, A Latter-Day Perspective on Wealth and Christian Endurance. Those two things. So look in your bulletin with point number one. Christian, do not envy the fortunes of the rich. In these latter days, the rich will be judged by God for, and then James lists a number of things. Now listen, you rich people, verse 1, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. And of course, these miseries aren't worldly miseries. Many unrighteous rich people go to their graves at a ripe old age uh, in the lap of luxury, surrounded by loving family and friends. Uh, No, this is the condemnation and punishment that God will mete out on the unrighteous rich on the day of judgment. He says, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. And this coming misery, this coming judgment isn't due to the fact that these people are rich. James is an anti-capitalist. No, James is saying these people will be condemned by God on Judgment Day because they've misused their wealth. They've misused it. And their misuse misuse is further aggravated and is particularly grievous and stupid and rebellious in light of what time it is. Right? This, This present moment in salvation history. That's when they're doing this. These people are sinfully misusing their wealth in the last days. Specifically, the unrighteous rich have been laying up earthly treasure. They're defrauding their workers. They're living luxurious, self-indulgent lifestyles and oppressing the righteous. In the face of Jesus' impending return to judge the living and the dead, even so, 
Even so, these people are hoarding money. Fools. Fools. Can you imagine hoarding money in the already here, not yet come, new creational reign of Jesus Christ? And it's interesting, I think, to compare this text with Jesus' famous teaching in Matthew 6, 19. I'll just read this text to you. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Friends, we're living now since the death and resurrection of Jesus, his ascension, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit 2,000 years ago. We're living now in what the Bible calls the last days. And we've been learning in our Sunday school class the last few weeks, the last days don't refer to some period of time in the apocalyptic future. In Acts 2, 17, we just saw this last week, the apostle Peter, quoting the Old Testament prophet Joel, preaches in the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. And that was at Pentecost, 50 days after Jesus was crucified, 2,000 years ago, the last days. Or this text, Hebrews 1.1. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom also he made the universe. And as God's people living in the last days, we must recognize in the grace of God already displayed in the gospel and in the judgment of God yet to come, a powerful, powerful stimulus to view material possessions biblically. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Friend, where's your treasure? What are some of your greatest desires in life? What do you daydream and fantasize about? What consumes your time in an effort to achieve? Is it money, wealth, possessions, assets, dividends, savings, your investment portfolio. Christian, how much practical significance on the, day, on the level of day-to-day behavior as it relates to your finances, as you look at your checking account, your savings account, investments, how much practical significance does the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and his coming again in glory to judge have? I mean, here you are living in the inaugurated new creational reign of Jesus Christ. All things are yours in Christ Jesus. But do you envy the godless rich? Are you a greedy man? Are you a covetous woman? Do you surf through real estate listings and home decor and home makeover websites the way some people look at porn? Are you discontent with what God has seen fit to provide you? Do you see the values of God's kingdom being squeezed out of your life because you're being devoured by your financial aspirations? James calls us to repentance and to live faithfully in these last days, Christians. And so we must do so.
Do you see? Satan is a defeated foe. Jesus reigns. Live accordingly. Dismantle your sin. Deconstruct it piece by piece with the truth of the gospel. Do not envy the fortunes of the unrighteous, godless, rich. They will be judged by God for laying up earthly treasure in these last days. These people, these are people who love money so much, they defraud their workers of pay that they might possess even more ephemeral earthly treasure. Verse 4, look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. The cries of their defrauded workers have reached the ears of God. Their unpaid wages are crying out to God, pleading for vindication. In these last days when God's grace has been so clearly revealed in the cross of Jesus Christ and his judgment is impending. What do these people think they're doing? What kind of universe do they think they're living in to act this way? Verse 5, you have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. Note that, you have lived on earth. Our Lord's half-brother is contrasting the pleasures the rich have enjoyed in this world with the torment that awaits them in the next. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. The last days have already begun. The judge is standing at the door, yet the rich, instead of acting to avoid that judgment, are, by their selfish indulgence, incurring greater guilt. They're heaping sin upon sin. They're like cattle being fattened for the kill. Verse 6, you have condemned and murdered the innocent one who was not opposing you. And their, their oppression is actually all the more atrocious because their innocent victims are unable to retaliate. It, it, it's, it's kind of hard to know for sure, but James probably means the rich have perverted the legal processes available to them to acquire more property and to amass more wealth. In their headlong pursuit, they've condemned the innocent and even murdered. And James is probably speaking of condemning and murdering Christians. Make no mistake, God is watching. He hears his people's cries for justice, cries that often go unanswered in this world. But one day, justice will be done, and it's going to be seen to be done. And so to the unrighteous, unrepentant rich, James writes this, Weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. I'm sure you've noticed, you can't help but notice, that there are a lot of rich people living in this city. Who are all these people (laughs) shopping in Yorkville? You know, are are there that many heiresses in the world? (laughs) Uh, When I was buying Jill's engagement ring 12 years ago, uh, a man and woman were sitting at the Burke's display counter, and they, they both looked like models, so they were rich and beautiful. And, and the staff, I, I mentioned this before, but the staff had actually left them to themselves uh, to enjoy a private moment. Their yellow Lamborghini was parked out front, and they were, um, they were all lovey-dovey, just sitting together, uh, drinking complimentary Cristal, and taking time to adore just adore a jewel-encrusted necklace. They're sitting like this, 
just, you know, actually was draped over her hand like this, and they're drinking the crystal and looking at it, you know, kissing and stuff like that. <laughs> Lamborghini out front. Honestly, it was, a sort of, it was a sort of necklace that Hollywood actresses rent for the Academy Awards. People live like that here in Toronto. Christian, do you wish deep inside that was you? Be honest. Where does your heart go when you see some clickbait article of Leo DiCaprio sunning himself on a super yacht in southern France? Where does your heart go as you watch Mansion Makeover on HGTV? Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Maybe the better part of sanctifying wisdom, Christian, isn't to watch shows like that or to click on those articles. Start thinking right. right? Those people aren't to be envied. They need to be lovingly warned. Their wealth has turned their hearts away from the living God to an idol. They need the gospel. They need to be aware of the realities introduced through Jesus' cross and resurrection. We're in the latter days, and we need to tell them. We need to warn them. We need to point them to Christ. Mark 8, 36. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? Christian, just in conclusion to this first point, do not envy the fortunes of the rich in these latter days. Start thinking biblically. Pray to God for grace to do so. All right, let's move to our second point now, verses 7 to 11, where James focuses his attention not on the non-Christian oppressor, but the Christian oppressed. Point two in our bulletins, Christian, do not lose heart in these latter days. Endure trials with patience and spiritual steadfastness in the knowledge that Jesus is returning soon. And basically, what we have here in verses 7 to 11 is the latter-day equivalent of what's sauce for the goose is sauce for the gander. So to the rich, point number one, don't hoard and oppress and kill in these latter days. Judgment is coming. And then to the Christians... Persevere patiently and with spiritual steadfastness in the face of trials in these latter days. Remember what God has accomplished in the death and resurrection of his son. You will soon be vindicated. Jesus is returning in judgment soon and he will consummate his kingdom. So do you see that latter day sauce is good for both groups. It gives both the oppressors and the oppressed a biblical perspective on life. Christians must remain patient and not grumble in these latter days because judgment day is near. James writes now, not to the unrighteous rich, but to the righteous poor. And he tells them, be patient for the coming of the Lord. That day is at hand when the wicked will be judged and you will be delivered. In the meantime, in the meantime, conduct yourselves as people living on the cusp of the climax of all history. Don't grumble. Be Patient, persevere, look ahead to what you will receive when Jesus returns. Basically, it's the same message the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Rome in Romans 8.18. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. James 5.7 
Be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. See how he's framing it? See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains? You too, be patient and stand firm. Why? Because the Lord's coming is near. New City, my appeal to us this morning, and I'm preaching to myself first and foremost, foremost, is this. Work hard to get that perspective in life. Brother, sister, are your circumstances presently trying, wearying, difficult? Are you suffering? Is Satan tempting you to compromise, to be inconsistent, to be double-souled, as James has warned us, to believe one thing theologically, but to live another way entirely? Are you tempted to grumble, to complain? Frankly, has a feeling of discouraged impatience settled over everything in your life like a shroud? Discouraged impatience. Have you noticed that your prayers, if you pray at all, has one theme? Lord, I have a big problem. Fix it now. Christian, you are without excuse. God commands you to look at life again with some biblical objectivity. You're without excuse. Be patient and stand spiritually firm because the Lord's coming is near. We must preach that truth to our heart. When we pray for believers in countries where there is persecution, don't we often deliberately phrase our prayers to reflect this gospel-wrought reality? I, I just did that this morning, do you recall? Lord, grant our brothers and sisters in Uttar Pradesh patience in their time of persecution until the Lord's coming. May they stand spiritually firm in these latter days. May they have comfort in knowing that the Lord's coming is near. Folks, what's good for the Indian gander is good for the Canadian goose, right? The last days have been inaugurated through Jesus' death and resurrection, and this final age of salvation will find its climax when the Lord returns in glory to judge the living and the dead. That hope isn't to be filed away in sort of some sealed compartment of our Western Christian minds. It's glorious truth that empowers and motivates our daily conduct right here in Toronto. But of course, the length, the duration of this latter day age is unknown. Jesus declares in Mark 13, 32, but about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard. Be alert. And so just as the farmer waits patiently for the seed to sprout and the crops to mature, so believers, we must wait patiently and stand spiritually firm for the Lord's return to deliver us and to judge our oppressors. Because it's not just a matter of waiting until Jesus' return. It's about waiting well. There's a way we are supposed to wait. So don't just wait. (laughs) Don't just pray for the return. Wait well. Verse 9, don't grumble. Here's here's how we do it. Don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. 
Grumbling against others. That's a sinful temptation that always seems to accompany difficult life circumstances, along with discontent, anxiety, impatience, and a lack of trust in God's will. Those sins always seem to move in a pack. Believer, ask yourself, how often do you find yourself taking out the frustrations of the day on your spouse, or on your kids, or on the members of this church, on your close friends, or even total strangers as you creep along at a snail's pace along the DVP? Refraining from that sort of complaining and grumbling is one aspect of patience in the last days. Be patient. Don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Which means the nearness of Judgment Day isn't all about looking ahead to the judgment of the unrighteous and the vindication of God. It's also a warning to examine our own behavior. The coming Lord is also the judge of the Christian. Which means every church, every individual Christian needs to guard against looking to Christ's return with glad anticipation, with hope even, that it will occur in our lifetime. Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, but not allow that future event to have its present day sanctifying impact. Guard against that. That's the very thing James warns against. Jesus' return is far more than a piece of religious dogma. It's far more than mere orthodox Christian teaching. It spurs us on to live lives of latter-day holiness. Don't grumble. Stand firm. Be patient. Do you see? Because the Lord's coming is near, we can live patient lives even in the face of tremendous hardship. We're standing firm with adherence to the faith in the midst of temptations and trials because Jesus is returning soon. We know it. We're not grumbling against one another because the judge is standing at the door. But the thing is, yes, though farmers wait patiently for their yearly harvest, their waiting isn't typically characterized by suffering and persecution, is it? Uh, But as Christians wait for the Lord's return, we may face both those things. So James switches gears in verse 10. Our waiting, he tells us, is more like the perseverance of the Old Testament prophets. Look at verse 10. Brothers and sisters, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. God's prophets to Israel and Judah had a tough road to hoe. Even though they spoke in the name of the Lord, even though they were communicating direct revelation from God to his covenant people, more often than not, they were reviled for it. They were persecuted for it, and they were killed. But all throughout, they remained faithful. They proclaimed their message faithfully despite the persecution. And James says these men of God are to be our example, our example of patience in the midst of suffering. Not They're not examples of instantaneous deliverance, but rather faithful perseverance. Verse 11, as you know, we count as blessed those who have persevered. That is, those who persevere in trials. And which figure in the Old Testament best combines perseverance in trials and blessing from God? In the last part of the last verse of our text today, James pulls out the big guns. 11b, you've heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. 
The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Brothers and sisters, the book of Job is matchless in Holy Scripture for causing us to reflect on the question of innocent, unexplained suffering. You know the story. I I preached this book uh, in three sermons four years ago. So let's just do a bit of a, a recap here. Job is a man who is blameless and upright. He's a man who fears God. He shuns evil. There is no one on earth like Job. Even so, blameless, innocent Job suffers terribly. As Josh read for us this morning, all ten of his children die. He's afflicted with painful sores from the soles of his feet to the crown of his head. He loses all of his wealth, all of his possessions. And all to causes, Job knows full well remain within God's sovereign sway. It didn't just happen out of the blue. He knows it's within God's sovereign sway. Even so, when the last bit of terrible news concerning his children arrives, Job tears his robe, he shaves his head, and he worships God, uttering words that have become famous. Naked, I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. Yahweh gave, and Yahweh has taken away. May the name of Yahweh be praised. And then the narrator comments, chapter 1, verse 22, In all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. Then Job goes through three cycles of debates with his miserable comforters, and they offer up glib answers to all his suffering in a condemning spirit. Because to their thinking, God's universe works on the principle of retribution. So if bad things happen to you, it means you've done bad things. It's proof positive you're a bad person. And so because his friends have no category for guiltless, innocent suffering on top of everything else, (coughs) Job loses his reputation as well. And Job, he responds to all of this with self-justification and hard questions. He knows he's guilty of nothing that can justify this sort of terrible suffering. And the reader knows that's true. Job is suffering because God is demonstrating his servant's spiritual integrity to Satan, not because Job is being punished for anything he did wrong. But Job never learns that. God never explains to Job why. And so Job's speeches, or better, his laments, are the anguish of a man who knows God is just, but who cannot make sense of that belief in light of his own experience. Maybe you can relate to that. Yet Job is absolutely confident in his final vindication by God himself. On the other hand, Job defends his own integrity so vehemently that he steps over the line now and then and actually charges God with injustice. And in his final lengthy speech from chapters 26 to 31, Job reaches a new intensity of bitterness. He's not looking for merely intellectual answers, a merely theological argument. He wants personal vindication from God himself. He wants God to appear and to give an account for what he's done in his life. 
which then has major implications for how Job or how God addresses Job in his closing interrogation in chapters 38 to 41. But before we get to that, in chapter 32, young Elihu appears on the scene for the first time. Young Elihu speaks accurately. He speaks transitionally as a, as a precursor and a foil to God. He rebukes Job for impugning God's justice. Elihu tells Job that God may have some purposes and perspectives in mind, which Job knows nothing about. So however much Job insists that he's innocent, he must, he absolutely must put a guard on his tongue and refrain from making God guilty. The justice of God must always be a given. Always. And then in chapter 38, I want us to turn there, please. Chapter 38 of Job is on page 531 of our church Bibles. In this chapter, we come at last to God's interrogation of Job. And that is the appropriate word. This is a divine interrogation. But what's the setup going into these chapters? What do we need to bear in mind? Just this. Job has persistently maintained his innocence in his suffering, and rightly so. He is innocent, but he's wrong on at least two counts. First, he's determined to prove his innocence before God, even at the expense of God's justice. Job has concluded that God is unjust for allowing his innocent suffering. Second, and more fundamentally, Job presumes that God owes him an explanation. And so after 35 chapters of human dialogue, Job finally gets what he wished. Uh, He gets his interview with God, but it's not the sort of interview that he had in mind. Yes, God does respond to Job, but only on his own terms. And instead of Job questioning God, God questions Job. And Yahweh does not informally pull up a chair and ask Job to have a seat on the couch or a cup of coffee. Nor does God take Job to a courtroom and let Job plead his case as he wished for. No, God answers Job by thundering out of a storm. Chapter 38, verse 2. Who is this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. I will question you, and you shall answer me. And then we have rhetorical question after rhetorical question, each designed to remind Job of the kind of things that he can't do and only God can. Let me just quote some representative samples, all from chapter 38. Verse 4. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Verse 12. Have you ever given orders to the morning or shown the dawn its place? Verse 22, have you entered the storehouses of the snow or seen the storehouses of the hail, which I've reserved for times of trouble, for days of war and battle? Verse 31, and these are all references to stars. Can you bind the chains of the Pleiades? Can you loosen Orion's belt? Can you bring forth the constellations in their seasons or lead out the bear with its cubs? Verse 39, Do you hunt the prey for the lioness and satisfy the hunger of the lions when they crouch in their dens or lie in wait in a thicket? Who provides food for the raven when its young cry out to God and wander about for lack of food? Now turn to chapter 40, verse 2. Will will the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? Let him who accuses God answer him. Verse 3. Then Job answered the Lord, I am unworthy. 
How can I reply to you? I put my hand over my mouth. I spoke once, but I have no answer. Twice, but I will say no more. But God's not through with Job yet. His interrogation goes on for two more chapters. 40 verse 6. Then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm. Brace yourself like a man. I will question you and you shall answer me. Would you discredit my justice? Would you condemn me to justify yourself? In other words, and brothers and sisters, hear this. This is so important. God never answers Job's questions about the problem of evil and his innocent suffering. God never explains himself to Job. But he does make it unambiguously clear what answers are not acceptable in God's universe. The reason Yahweh calls Job on the carpet is because of Job's willingness to condemn God in order to justify himself. God's justice, though, is never to be impugned. God's justice is never, ever to be impugned. Job questioned how God governs his universe. And so now God retorts by questioning whether Job is as strong as God. And here we find a rebuke for any of us, New City, who by complaining and grumbling about particular events in our life imply that we could propose to God a better way of running his universe than those God currently uses, those ways. Chapter 40, verse 8. Would you discredit my justice? Would you condemn me to justify yourself? Do you have an arm like God's? And can your voice thunder like his? Then adorn yourself with glory and splendor and clothe yourself in honor and majesty. Unleash the fury of your wrath. Look at all who are proud and bring them low. Look at all who are proud and humble them. Crush the wicked where they stand. Bury them all in the dust together. Shroud their faces in the grave. Then I myself will admit to you that your own right hand can save you. And then God reinforces that message with two illustrations, Behemoth and Leviathan. Basically, God says, Job, can you control the untamable, invincible Behemoth and Leviathan? You would never, ever pick a fight with them. So why are you picking a fight with me? Why do you think you can stand against me that you have a claim against me that I must pay. I own everything. I owe nothing to anyone. Now turn to chapter 42, verses 1 to 6. Here we read that Job's response to the Lord is not, Oh, now I get it. Now I understand why I suffered so. But rather, heartfelt repentance. Repentance for the guilt, the guilt of demanding that God provide him with a thorough explanation for all his suffering. Brothers and sisters, there is a lesson to be learned here. Chapter 42, verse 1. Then Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. You asked, who is this that obscures my plans without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I did not understand things too wonderful for me to know. You said, listen now, and I will speak. I will question you, and you shall answer me. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself, and I repent in dust and ashes. In other words, 
You, Yahweh, you are supremely sovereign, so you may do whatever you want. I questioned your wisdom with words that lack knowledge. I, I didn't know what I was talking about. And now that I understand you far more clearly than before, I repent. Repent of what? Of my attitude that dared stand in judgment of God. Loved ones, hear that. Write that down on the inside cover of your Bible. Because suffering is coming for all of us if we live long enough. Ten adult children dead. All worldly wealth gone. Physical health destroyed. And Job repents of his attitude that dared stand in judgment of God. What Job doesn't say is, ah, now I understand. Now it's all so clear. No, Job changes. Job becomes content not to know. He develops spiritual maturity. Now he's prepared to acknowledge in the face of devastating loss that his tiny slice of things, his small corner where he sees and experiences life is so infinitesimally small compared with all that God knows that he's prepared just to shut up and trust God. God, Job's view of God changes, which in turn profoundly impacts how Job relates to his suffering. Now, in the midst of this trial, Job did presumptuously demand of God to provide him with a thorough explanation as to why all these terrible things happened to him, so he's not perfect. Nevertheless, he persevered in his faith. And God rewarded Job for his perseverance. Look at chapter 42, verse 12. The Lord blessed the latter part of Job's life more than the former part. And that is the very thing James refers to. James 5.10. Brothers and sisters, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophet's who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we count as blessed those who have persevered. You've heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. That perspective is so important. In the end, not only God's justice, but his compassion, his mercy prevail. And how does this play out in Job's life? In conclusion, just look at chapter 42, verse 10 of the book of Job. After Job had prayed for his friends, the Lord restored his fortunes and gave him twice as much as he had before. All his brothers and sisters and everyone who had known him before came and ate with him in his house. They comforted and consoled him over all the trouble the Lord had brought on him. And each one gave him a piece of silver and a gold ring. The Lord blessed the latter part of Job's life more than the former part. He had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 donkeys. He also had seven sons and three daughters. The first daughter he named Jemima, 
the second Keziah, and the third Karen Hapuk. Nowhere in all the land were there found women as beautiful as Job's daughters, and their father granted them an inheritance along with their brothers. After this, Job lived 140 years. He saw his children and their children of the fourth generation, and so he died old and full of years. So, after 40 chapters of unbelievable pain and suffering, the story ends with a massive vindication for Job. His wealth is restored to him, and it's doubled. He is given a new family, and all the old honor in which he was held is restored, and it's increased. New City, one of the points of the book of Job is that in the end, in the end, the people of God are vindicated. We're not asked to accept suffering in this life without vindication. We're not asked to accept death and self-denial without the promise of the new heavens and new earth. This world we live in, filled as it is with evil and wickedness and suffering and death and injustice, this is also, it's also the already here, not yet come, new creational reign of Jesus Christ, his kingdom. And a world where Satan, sin, death, and hell have already all been defeated at the cross. And so this is a world where Jesus bids his people patience, patience as they await his glorious return. Stand firm in these latter days before the Lord Jesus revealed in glory and he judges the earth. This last chapter of Job makes perfect biblical sense. This isn't some sort of happy, like a happy ending, some dim-witted editor just tacked on centuries later. It makes perfect biblical sense. It's utterly consistent with the eschatological reality accomplished in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. What the last chapter of Job is, is the Old Testament equivalent to the New Testament anticipation of the new heavens and new earth. That's what this is. That's how we read it, canonically, with a whole Bible perspective, the whole canon of Scripture. It's a picture of the blessing, the reward, the perfect vindication Christians will receive in the consummated splendor. Christian, be encouraged. Your present suffering is not the end of the story. Even if the situation that you're in right now doesn't change for 50 years and you still, you die still experiencing this same suffering. It's not the end of the story because Jesus hasn't returned yet. Jesus has not yet been revealed in glory. Persevere. Persevere. Be patient. Don't grumble. We'll wait patiently with endurance, not grumbling. And yes, there will be, there will be some things that we don't understand. There will be times when we'll squirm and wish that we had more answers at our fingertips. And maybe in the darkest times, we too will start wrestling with God and wondering what in the world is going on. And we'll have our good moments and we'll cry out, though he slay me, yet I will trust him. And other moments, we'll be right on the edge of cursing God, like Job, and saying, I wish I had a lawyer, I'd sue God. But if we begin to see God in all his transcendent glory, we will sometimes perceive how very small we are, and we'll be willing to wait for the end. By God's enabling grace, we will heed the words of James. You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. 
The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Amen.